1: Hello, I'm Samantha Bond, uh, commonly known as Sam. Now, when I'm not doing my day job working alongside Maggie Smith, Piers Brosnan, or even the gorgeously hirsute Burt Reynolds, God rest his soul, I'm an ambassador for a wonderful organisation called Acting for Others. And together, we've paired up some of the UK's brightest stars of stage and screen for hmm, intimate conversations about, well, their passion for theatre. Trials and triumphs, loves and losses, and a whole lot more. I said the theatre is a temple and you should be ashamed of yourself
3: for desecrating it. Me as a black woman was not getting any of that work or any of that practice. And now I'm in this position, post-50, I'm ageing in. Ben Whishaw, the hardest man to make corpse on stage, I only got him once.
1: Dear listener, there's a very good reason why we're doing this. We think that theatre is something to truly treasure and it must be protected at all costs, starting with the people working in it. And this is where Acting for Others comes in because we provide both financial and emotional support to production crew, front of house, actors, set designers, in fact, anyone working in UK theatre in times of need through a network of 14-member charities. And every penny this podcast generates will go to those charities. In fact, you listening now is helping, so thank you. And if you'd like to go further and make a donation, listen to the end for details or click the link in the show notes. Now here we go. Dame Eileen Atkins and Adjua Ando, recorded in July 2022. Enjoy.
4: Hello. Yeah, you went for a moment there. Just had to sort the dog out. (laughs) She's melting. I know you poor things. I mean, I'm
3: worried about my cats at home. Okay, here we are. Hello, Dame Eileen Atkins. Oh, drop the dame, please. (laughs) (laughs)
4: It's nice to see you again. It's lovely to see you. I mean, it was such a brief meeting, wasn't it? I know, that fantastic poetry evening. Yes, you literally flew in three minutes before we went on. I thought, my God, what confidence. And then the poem, you knocked it that evening. It was brilliant. It was the Langston Hughes poem about America, wasn't it? That's it. Yeah. I'm just thrilled to look at the work you've done and see how much you've done in the theatre because I really am a total
3: theatre is my world. Yeah. And it looks to me as if it's yours as well. Absolutely. I think... We can do all the other work, which is lovely, the telly and the film and the radio, but there's something so visceral about standing flesh and blood in front of flesh and blood and just telling a story. Yes. There's something so ancient and intimate about it. I think that's what I find really moving. You just feel really alive, I think, when you're doing it. That's what I love. I couldn't agree with you more. On stage, you are the
4: one holding the audience Mm. and the power i think is wonderful i always feel as if i've been in the trenches with actors i've been on the stage with especially Mm. after a first night oh my gosh you've gone out there with a new story you don't know how they're going to tell it and then they tell you how to play it And you just don't get any of that on on film or television.
3: No, uh, I always think of it in a sort of, you triangulate something. The writer had an idea and then you're embodying that idea. And then the audience is receiving and responding to that idea. And then it creates this fourth thing, which is that live moment for that performance only that will never be replicated because those three spirits have come together the writer the performer and the audience yeah and you know you may have had a bad night's sleep or great sex or it might be raining or whatever so we're all bringing slightly different energies with us as well aren't we yeah you're right about that i remember i remember one night
4: having a really um well The end of an affair that happened during the day. Mm. And I went in to do the cocktail party with Alec Kinnis. Oh, my God. It's a wonderful part. And there's the moment when he tells her that she's going to uh, be, she ends up a martyr, crucified and eaten by ants. And he tells her that she's going on this journey to a nunnery and he hands her the address. And I would never cry there because I didn't think it was right to cry. But Alec wanted me to. And then that night, because of the affair during the day, (laughs) I cried. And he was so happy and said, you got it, you got it. I said, no, I split with my bloke today. (laughs) So I hated giving him the wrong reason. But it was because I
3: had gone in in a different state that day. Yeah, and all those emotions would hit you differently because you're seeing it through the lens of a heartbreak. Yes. It's the thing that everyone trots out, but it's so true. You know, the heartbeats all beating together when we're all in a space together, or, you know, being younger, doing a show, and all the women suddenly having their periods at the same time. We're we're built to be in communion with each other, I think.
4: Well, I've I've always felt it's it's my happiest and
3: safest place. Yeah. I remember doing... Stuff Happens at the National. It was politics and acting. So frankly, I was like a pig in shit. And taking the curtain call on press night and feeling like I was levitating with that sense of being in the middle of this national and international conversation about the war in Iraq. And what had we done? And what had we, you know, opened the floodgates to? And to be having that really crucial visceral conversation on the main stage of the National Theatre with people leaning in for the conversation I just I think it's one of my most happy moments on stage ever just to feel part of that conversation yes have you got any sort of levitation moments from your theatre career well I think I think I've got a
4: different kind of experience mm. that I I know if many actors do know about it It sounds almost spiritual, and I'm very nervous of talking about it to anyone, but since this is to talk about that kind of thing, there are very rare nights in a part when, how can I put it? I feel as if it's suddenly not me.
3: Hmm.
4: I've been taken over Mm -hmm. totally and I don't know whether it's by the part or whatever, but I can't do anything wrong that night. Mm -hmm. There's no way I'm thinking about a line anywhere. There's no way I'm thinking that actor hasn't quite moved on there because normally you have the part and then there's a reel in your head, isn't there? Mm -hmm. He's moved too far upstage. The chat, yeah. Uh, uh, There's usually a reel. There is no reel that night, but suddenly everything pours Right through, I always think of myself as an actor as a vessel, yes, uh, and, and something the, the the writer's words go through me, and I give them out, and it 's almost spiritual mm-hmm. there's a wonderful story about uh, Lawrence Olivia in that way i've forgotten he was playing one night i can 't remember what it was. I think it might have been Coriolanus, and he was just absolutely magnificent. Mm-hmm. And the actors listening on the tannoy gradually came down to the wings to look because they were hearing it was something special. And when the, they'd taken their curtain call, the whole company applauded him and he just pushed his way through them and went to his dressing room and slammed the door. And Derek Jacoby knocked on the door and said, what's the matter with you? You were incredible tonight. And he said, I know, I know, and I don't know what was different. <laughs> Yes, I don't know what I did. Yes, I don't know what I did, and I think he had an evening when he was taken over.
3: Yeah, yeah,
4: but I wouldn't talk about that. It. It's
3: awkward to talk to the public about it because it sounds um, a bit airy fairy. I think, no, I absolutely uh, concur with you in that, and I, I remember um, being, it's sort of in this, in this, in the same that sense of being taken over or something happening. And I was actually in the audience. I was, I was 16. I was in the sixth form at school. I was anorexic. My parents were getting divorced. Wow. Um, I was supposed to be doing the Oxbridge entrance exam. In fact, I'd done it once. I was about to sit it for a second time. And uh, I was really depressed. And I went to see... Kate Nelligan in Plenty, a David Hare play at the Bristol Old Vic. And I sat up in the cheap seats and I was taken over by this play that had nothing to do with my life. Young woman on special ops in France, having been brilliant there, having fallen in love, coming back and having to be in the sort of austere post-war landscape where she's not you know helping the underground or you know sending messages over secret radios or evading the Nazis she's a secretary in an office again and just watching her life diminishing before her and I as a 16 year old from the Cotswolds little mixed race girl in the 1970s this play it stopped me I wept my face off and I just thought well I thought two things I thought there will be a moment there will be a moment for my life and the other thing i thought was whatever's happened between me and her i want i want that i want to be part of that whatever that thing is i want to be oh yeah i want to be on the stage i want to be in the theater I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, Eileen. How did you get started? I mean, did you know from Tiny that there was something in the world of performance or storytelling or creativity that was for you? No. I taught myself to read. I didn't go to school till I
4: was seven because of the war Mm. and I was evacuated and um, I taught myself to read and the minute I got hold of stories, which is what our life is about, yeah. I became uh, obsessed by them. But then I was forced to be by my parents. I mean, I don't mean that, but they thought I liked doing it. I was this awful child performer.
3: Mm.
4: I sang and danced atrociously in worked in men's clubs. Wow. All through the war. Wow. Wow. Um, Oh, d- d- disgusting. I was baby Eileen, a uh, Sue dancer.
3: Was that because were your parents involved?
4: No. No, they knew they no. nothing about it. But when I was three, a gypsy had come to the door. My mother was terribly uh, superstitious. Mm-hmm. And the gypsy said to my mother, that little girl there, I was three, is going to be a great dancer. Wow. So my mother thought, that's it. I mean, the gypsy had spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, so... She took me to dancing classes when I was three. I screamed and said, take me home, I don't like it here. I was a dreadful child, and I was late. My mother was 46, and I had siblings that were years older than me. Mm. And my mother had longed for a little girl to um, make pretty... She was a dressmaker, make pretty dresses for and everything. And so I was worshipped by my mother Mm -hmm. and spoiled, but also made to do this dancing. And um, no way should should I have been a dancer. but And from that, I got a lot of confidence from being out in front of people and having to perform. Mm-hmm. And then my mother realised that to do well in musicals, because they only thought of musicals, that I would have to speak well, and I had a complete working-class accent. And so she sent me with a note to school to say with somebody teach me to speak proper Mm -hmm. and then a a teacher who took us for religion I was now 12 stopped me in the corridor one day and said I'll teach you but you've got to come whenever I say whenever I want you whenever I feel like it oh my gosh and uh I did I I said okay and he was a, a wonderful man I mean I doubt whether it would be allowed now but Night after night after school, it got to that I would stay four nights a week, Wow. Or four or five nights a week. And he sort of took me over. I mean, he stopped, he stopped me going out with a boy at school and things like that. Wow. I found out years later from the boy, he'd been told to leave me alone. And he taught me about life as well. I mean, he was a a wild, strange... I mean, at the time, I thought he was a very old man. I was 12 and he was 32. And actually, <laughs> he married someone after I'd left school who was younger than me. Oh, wow. So, you know, but he gave me everything. Yes. He gave me my life. Wow. And he said, apply for RADA for the scholarship mm-hmm. because you have, you have to be very, very good. And if you win... The the scholarship, you will know that you're the best. And if not, go and be a drama teacher somewhere, do one Mm -hmm. of those courses. And I got through two rounds at the RADA, Mm -hmm. and it was down to three of us. Mm -hmm. And then I got a telegram at my sister's wedding telling me I hadn't got it. Oh! And as I cried and ran out of the wedding breakfast, my sister said... She always spoils everything. (laughs) And and I was set to be a teacher. And I went to Guildhall. Mm -hmm. And in those days, they didn't keep a very sharp eye out at Guildhall. So I simply did the two courses. (gasps) And nobody noticed. Wow. Uh, And then I won the Shakespeare Prize there. (gasps) And then the the, uh, principal of the Guildhall said to me, I think we've just noticed that you're in the teaching course So
3: you were doing the acting course and the teaching course Yes
4: Wow It took a long time I was there at nine o'clock in the morning And I left at nine at night And at weekends to have enough money A friend of mine from the tap dancing school The two of us used to give tap dancing lessons to kids in King's Cross Gosh Gosh I've never been so tired in my life Oh my god. The energy of youth, wow, that's extraordinary. What moment made you think,
3: that's what I want to do, act? But you studied for a lawyer, didn't you? Well, after I crashed and burned with Oxbridge, um, I resat my A-levels. I was really Low, and I did horribly in them, and then I thought I'm never doing education again, I hate you and I went to work for Lloyd's Bank because where I grew up, you know smart girls joined the bank or maybe the civil service, or they worked for a building society. yeah, and then you got married and that was it. yeah, and I lasted a year and a day before I was I was just like, yes, I'll do a law degree anywhere, send me anywhere because I didn't know you could do acting as a job. you may as well have said you can do. I don't know, nuclear physics or something. So it wasn't until I was halfway through my law degree when I was absolutely convinced I loathed law. I didn't want to do it. I didn't care about kicking tenants off their land because you never learnt law from the tenants' point of view in those days. And um, I was in a black women's group at college. I was at Bristol Polytechnic. And we'd been to Greenham. We'd done encircling the base. Um, I was discovering all this amazing literature by these writers I'd never heard of you know Paula Marshall and Alice Walker yes just stuff I didn't know and Deborah John Wilson her name was she'd come from the San Francisco meme troupe and she was in Bristol and she had written a play and she got funded by Ken Livingston and the GLC to put this play on in London and when I gave up my law degree she said to me come and take my class so I'd taken her class and um, and then when she got this funding, she said, "Come up to London. You have to audition for my play." So I went up to London, and I didn't know what to do. So I did a paragraph from E. P. Thompson's *The Making of the English Working Class*. That was my <laughs> audience. That was my audition speech. <laughs> I had no clue, um, but I thought he was really interesting. So I thought, brilliant oh, idea, yeah. actually. And um, and I I sang a I don't know I sang one of my dad's you know i don't remember nina simone or odetta or somebody and um and i got the job and i sort of fell into acting like that and um i knew that's what i wanted to do so i just didn't go back to bristol oh, wow i moved into a squat i cleaned toilets i modeled for life drawing classes i didn't work for a year and then other black actresses started telling me about auditions and i've never forgotten the sort of generosity of telling me about jobs that would put me in competition with them for the job. And so I started auditioning and I eventually got a job with a young people's socialist feminist touring company um, in the early eighties and uh, got my equity card through them. And then spent, you know, about five years waiting for the tap on the shoulder and, excuse me, have you trained? (laughs) Get out of my rehearsal room, you know, and just watching people all the time, watching their technique, Their thought patterns, their rehearsal processes, until I got a sense of my own version of that.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
3: It's always felt to me as a sort of, um, the professions a harbour as well for lots of sort of ships that have been bobbing on the sea and not quite finding their port. And I sort of think there's a call that goes out and all these, these people across the world <laughs> hear the call and are sort of drawn towards the stage or whatever it is, you know, because we all come from such disparate places and we all find our way. And there you all are with this strange desire and gift
4: to... Tell a story. Mm. And sometimes, if I'm feeling cross with a director who's, I feel, has messed up the play by giving an impossible mm-hmm. something, um, I say in a very quiet voice, you know, if you just had a group of actors together, we could do it. Yes. We could tell a story. We could even make up the story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could always get a group of actors who could entertain. Yes. But I'm very thankful for some wonderful directors. But, you know, if they get too cocky, I, I just think in my head, there have only been directors for barely a 100 years. Mm-hmm. And the theatre has existed for thousands of years.
3: I wanted to ask you, Eileen, as an actor, as a, an actress, you know, I'm about to hit 60, Um you're a bit older than me. <laughs> how how have you, you know, because you're still fully in the game, as people would say, how have you found um, roles or your life as an actor, how has it shifted over your career? Um, that's a terribly broad question, sorry, but I'm just really interested because you, you know, your brilliance as an actor, your enthusiasm and joy for it, and your precision in it all of that seems to be burning just as brightly as ever are you finding work is interesting um the spaces that you want to inhabit with characters what's the variety like compared to other stages in your career all of that stuff I'm interested in It, it it is
4: becoming more difficult at 88 which I was I enjoyed um celebrating with the crew here in Cornwall um you know I look at a script now and think uh, what I would have learned in six weeks, I I think, I hope they're giving me three months or more for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I've found throughout my life is that I don't remember going through a period of thinking there are no parts my age. And I think that was because... From a very early age, I was always looking for stuff that I could adapt or do, so I'd make a suggestion and that would lead to something else, not necessarily what I had in mind in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I do think, and I didn't do well until I was 32, and I was able to play young for a long time, but Mm. I still never hit that thing that people seem to hit in their 50s and 60s when it um seems to stop uh for them Mm. it never hit me Mm -hmm. but it was I think because I was always uh adapting and thinking of other things that I might do or finding and reading plays and thinking wouldn't that be good Mm. so I was never out of work yes because I made a lot of it myself yes um and I had noticed that often in plays, and there's no doubt you have this talent as well, that I would think it's terribly good, but it would be even better if we swapped those scenes round or if we oh, took yes. those lines there and put them there. Yes. And because in my days, if a woman spoke, nobody took any notice of you. You, know, you. They would just look at you and then half an hour later, one of the men would have the idea and then that would be accepted. Mm. So I didn't really think I could do that. But my best friend, Jean Marsh, um, was always out of work and we were always having ideas for TV series. And then we were watching the Mm Forsyth Saga and everybody, that was the Bridgerton of its day. It really was, yeah. And um, we were watching it and one of us said, it's all very well, but, you know, what would we have been in those days? And she would have said we would have been the scullery maid. We would, you know. Mm-hmm. And then we said, well, you don't ever get the life of the servant. And my father had been in service as an under chauffeur, and her mother had been in service as, um, I've forgotten, I don't think she went as far as parlour maid, but a posh maid. And so we started researching it together, and we had the, the amazing luck of it being picked up. Um But we weren't allowed to write it. Oh, we wrote the, um, you know, the uh, rough. What do you call it these days? The pitch. The pitch doc they call it. The pitch. Yeah, we we did the pitch, and we we had written like ideas for twelve episodes. Um, We'd done quite a bit, but they said no. We have to get other people in to actually write it. So we never wrote it. But then when we came up with the next idea. the House of Elliot, mm. Then we were allowed to write a little bit on that, but I still didn't think of it as writing. I thought of it as sort of helping people out because everybody said get the real writers in. I thought I was always helping the real writers out a bit, yes, rather than being a writer. Yeah, yeah. But out, out of interest, I mean, I've only seen the odd because I don't, I, I hardly watch television, but mm. it's not on. BBC one, two, three or four, whatever I get in hotel rooms and things.
3: Yeah. What, how did that occur? Who pushed that through? And how did the, the, the series? We're talking Bridgerton. Yeah. Are we, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the first I knew of it was getting the sides for Lady Danbury. And the sides just leapt off the page at me. Because, you know, they don't send you everything. Sometimes they just send you your bits. I gather now, yes. Yeah. That would never have happened in the past. Oh, it's right. You're going right back to Shakespeare's day with that. I know, exactly. Here's <laughs> your part, that's your cue, on you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but she just leapt off the page, and I just thought, oh, I could do something with her. I could do something with her. And so when I went in for the meeting, it was a very, you know, it was a Friday night. The casting director, she had to get home. She had to catch a train and get home. I skidded into the meeting. We did it a couple of times. And uh, and then she went, right, I've got to get my train to see you. And it was done. And I just thought, you know, if I get the part, fabulous. If I don't get the part, I've really, I actually really enjoyed preparing this yeah. and having her words in my mouth. Um, so that felt really Easy breezy actually. Um, and she's you know, sometimes, sometimes I find um there are characters who appear before one and you feel like, oh, I've been, I've been waiting for you. Yeah. It's almost like there's a bit of you that's been preparing for them. I, I've had it a couple of times. I had it, um, I did a film called Invictus about Nelson Mandela with um Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman played Nelson Mandela. Matt Damon played Francois Pienaar. It was set during the Rugby World Cup of 1995. And I played um, Mandela's chief of staff, a woman, Barbara Masekela, Hugh Masekela's sister, but in the film she was called Brenda Mazibuko. And uh, again, I just did one audition on tape because Clint doesn't see people. He just looks at tapes. And again, it was really easy. I felt, oh, I know, I know this person. I can, I can do this. And the whole job was easy. Um, he was a great director because he'd been an actor. Yeah. So he trusted actors to do their job. And if you had a better suggestion, he was happy to go with that. Um, and again, with um, Lady Danbury, I just sort of went, oh, yes, I, I know who you are. So she's she's been a sort of a joy to play, really. Um, I do have my funny little languagey things. And I think it's... Um, American English and English English. Oh yeah, and where the two, you know, so there's a bit of me that'll be going, that should be a gerundive clause, or that's a split infinitive, or all that stuff, and I'm like, a bit of me is like, oh ads, just park it, park it. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to change it. Just sell it, sell it. And you have to refine a different music to make, you know, the line work or whatever. Yeah. Um, for me, the thing I always say about it is, it had the extra juice of going. It's costume drama. But probably in a version that's an unfamiliar version, so you know you could be gay, you could be straight, you could be a feminist or a homemaker, you could be of any race you liked, or you might just be someone that likes looking at a stately home in a nice frock, or will they won't they, whatever it had quite a wide embrace, yeah, I mean, you know, I think my husband's seen half an episode, but that's just because it's not it's not his bag. I love you, don't make me. <laughs> Um, He's sort of, he's very pleased for me Um, So it's not everybody's bag But I think it was a really broad um, invitation And I think it did that thing for some people Of just going, the world, I have no idea what's going on I don't know what we're going to do Oh look, that's a lovely castle Oh, they're on the horses Now they're galloping down, marvellous it's certainly
4: people enjoy it, but, but it's also, I mean, I knew you because I knew about the Richard II. Yes. I think it was very brave of you. And I wished I'd seen it because I hear it was wonderful. Very brave of you to go in and do Richard II. Mm. So I knew who you were and, you know, I knew you were a respected actress but this will have made you, as we all know, television particularly, will have made, would have put you in star bracket. And so you you won't have probably any trouble. Uh, you will be employed for a very long time. Well, we'll see. Who knows? Well, I'll tell you why. Because, because one reason people get into trouble when they get older is... And I can see that – I'm afraid I just know that neither of us have this – is they still want to look good in their idea of good. Mm. So there's an – if you just – they would lack a bit of vanity and play the parts for the older woman and not still try and look whatever. Yes. Um,
3: They would do a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. And you just think – you know, we, we're all we're all still interesting. We're all still vital. We all still have, you know, dramatic and interesting and um, engaging stories to tell and lives that are led. So just keep telling those stories. In fact, often the
4: older women's stories are more interesting than the younger ones. So yeah, I mean, they are. You're
3: quite right that there are still stories there. So and there's there's history and there's juice and there's baggage and you know, experience and wisdom and fears and there's all, you know, everything's, everything's still to play there. I like that ending. Yeah. Everything's still to play. Yeah, You know, I I really wanted to talk with you, Eileen, because I just feel like I'm walking in your footsteps in a way, just in terms of the appetite and the joy and the curiosity of it, but also that thing you said about finding things that are interesting and making your own work. It's... Uh, I really love that. I
4: I've really felt I've 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 uh, I've met a sister. Mm-hmm. Actor. I I mean you're and I haven't found one for a long time that I feel is in well, you know, you're my daughter or granddaughter in the business. So you, you, you're well wow, thank you. Well, now you said you're going now I'm going to weep. So <laughs> um what, what what a treasure. I'm very 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 happy to have met you.
3: Well, right back at you. Me too. Me too. What a, what a treat and a privilege. Thank you, Adja. Thank you, Eileen. Have a great day in Cornwall, work, and um, good luck with it all. And bye, bye. See you soon. See you soon. Yeah. Yes. Back in
4: God London bless.
3: soon. Bye. Yes.
1: Great. Okay. Thank you. Thank Off you. We go. Bye. Thank you, Eileen and Adja. This podcast is raising funds for acting for others, which provides both financial and emotional support to theater workers in times of need through a network of 14 wonderful member charities. This is Ben's story.:
4: I was working in London as a jobbing actor. I just never imagined at that time that me, age 25, that I would be someone diagnosed with cancer. I saw my whole life flash before my eyes. When I started the painful and, quite frankly, really frightening rounds of chemo and surgery, I was terrified by the reality of my desperate financial situation. On top of all of this, being an out-of-work actor, I couldn't afford to live and pay my bills through my treatment. But all of this changed the moment I was put in touch with Acting for Others. They got me financial support that I so desperately needed. I don't know if I could have done it without them.
1: If you have the means and would like to make a donation to help people like Ben, you can do so via our website, actingforothers.co.uk, or click on the link in the show notes. Any donation, it doesn't matter how small, will make a big difference. For more episodes, please subscribe and download, and while you're there, we'd love you to rate and review us. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Matt and Scott, a pod monkey, for their editing wizardry, the inimitable Dan Gillespie Sells for the music, and Feast for the artwork. The producer was Robert Reese. The executive producer was Kevin Mundi. This has been a Simple Beast production.